I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 25. So we've finished our Winter Moth series of deep dives, and so in today's podcast, we're starting a new spring series. The list is over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Kendall Giles. But first up, which we'll discuss in today's episode, is a book on ways we can think about technological change, especially considering all the work that has been done on thinking about models for scientific change. Okay, let's dive in. Part of the series called Sociology of the Sciences Monographs, the book The Nature of Technological Knowledge, Are Models of Scientific Change Relevant, is edited by Rachel Loudon. Rachel received a PhD in History and Philosophy of Science from the University College London in 1974 and taught at a number of universities, including Carnegie Mellon, Pittsburgh, Virginia Tech, and the University of Hawaii. Though her main academic interests were in the history of science and technology, she turned toward the history of food, and later left academia to pursue food history full-time. In fact, she has written a number of award-winning books on food history, such as The Food Paradise in 1996 and Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History in 2012. However, today's book that we're going to discuss is from her time focused on the history of science and technology. So let's turn to that book. Published in 1984, the book, The Nature of Technological Knowledge, Are Models of Scientific Change Relevant, is an edited volume containing six essays by different scholars, as well as an introduction by the editor, Rachel Loudon. Overall, as Rachel says in her introduction, this book looks at how to understand the causes and mechanisms of technological change. There are a lot of factors involved with developing a technology, such as organizational, cultural, legal, and economic, as well as the knowledge of the technology developers. Do we have some sense for how all these factors drive the development of a technology? Are there other factors as well, perhaps internal to the technology that is at play here. Sure, we've got economic models that show how technology affects worker productivity, for example, but those are economic models, not models for how the technology itself, especially from a cognitive standpoint, changes. One of the best models that we have for how science changes is given in Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. If you've ever heard of the word paradigm used in some business or science context, that's likely because of the success and popularity of Kuhn's model. Briefly, Kuhn said that day-to-day science operates by a community of scientists developing incremental theories according to that field's prevailing paradigm, which serves as the current model for how research should be conducted and in what directions. Over time, Results are found that can't be explained by the current paradigm. These unexplainable results are called anomalies. 
Eventually, enough anomalies are accumulated that a new theory is created that better explains the scientific results. This overturning of the old paradigm for a new one is called a scientific revolution. And so the main motivator of today's book is to think about how well or not Kuhn's model can apply to technology. For example, in the book Origins of the Turbojet Revolution, Rachel notes that Edward Constant, the author, built on theories of scientific change to suggest that technological traditions are identified with easily recognizable communities of practitioners with a certain knowledge basis. So I thought I would first briefly sketch each of the six essays in the volume that Rachel edited, then say a few words about how I think they can shed light on a modern technology, such as artificial intelligence. So the first essay is called Communities and Hierarchies, Structure in the Practice of Science and Technology by Edward Constant. Now, I have to admit being startled when I looked up the author. Edward Constant was a professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University, and as I just mentioned, also wrote the book Origins of the Turbojet Revolution. But according to the news reports, he was also convicted of aggravated assault and attempted homicide. So I guess you really shouldn't think that academic historians are all boring. So setting aside Constance's entanglements with the police, Constance's essay establishes a basis for using science for comparison and contrast with technology, and then works through that comparison. While he finds that there are enough similarities between science and technology to use Kuhn's model of change with technology, there are some features of technology that are different than science. And so we need to pay attention to and be careful with when we apply Kuhn's model to technology. I'll discuss these issues later when I try to apply what I got out of the book to my interests in artificial intelligence. But that was the quick summary of the first essay. The second essay is Paradigms, Revolutions, and Technology by Gary Gutting. Gutting was a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. In the essay, Gutting discusses the appropriateness of applying Kuhn's model to technology. One key point I liked is Gutting's discussion about the nature of scientific communities versus technology communities. One feature of science that gives Science, its authority over knowledge, why it's revered in society, perhaps why it's been successful, is that scientific communities are largely autonomous. In other words, when scientific results are produced, for example, it is other scientists who say whether or not those results are valid, not people outside of science. But with technology, while certainly there are other technologists who can validate technical designs for example, but there are also groups outside of technology that also say how or even if a design is appropriate, such as the government, the economy, and even society. Thus, technical communities don't enjoy the same autonomy and authority as do scientific communities. Gutting also concludes on two points that I agree with. The first is that technology, like pure science, produces distinct bodies of knowledge about the world. The second is that, unlike science, technology is a 
practical enterprise concerned with the most immediately pressing needs of the society in which it exists. In other words, technology is not just applied science. The third essay is Organizational Aspects of Technological Change by Norman Humman. Humman was a professor of sociology at the University of Pittsburgh. In his essay, he looks at how large industrial organizations manage technological change as well as how new forms of organizations are developed to create new technologies. He stated conclusions such as a single technological and organizationally innovative company often sets the standard for the whole industry. And among the more modern industrial cases, organizational innovation generally includes the institutionalization of technological change. Now, that was uh, some conclusions in that paper, but unfortunately, I did not uh, get much uh, out of this particular article. Read it yourself and see, see if you agree. The fourth essay is Cognitive Change in Technology and Science by Rachel Loudon herself. Her basic idea in the essay is to explore how both science as well as technology are the result of the purposeful problem-solving activities of the members of relatively small communities of practitioners. In particular, she says that the problems that technologists try to solve can occur when, one, there is an issue in the environment that someone decides could be solved by technology, two, a current technology fails due to a functional failure, such as increased usage, three, by extending current technologies to make an incremental improvement. Four, one technology improvement causes a dependent technology to suddenly become inadequate. And the example here she cites is that when shipbuilders change from wooden sailing ships to ones made of iron and powered by steam, this caused an instability problems in the boats that needed new technical solutions. And five, Science can suggest that a current technology has some limitation, thereby suggesting a new technology need. This last category of how technology problems are generated is called a presumptive anomaly. And an example discussed in the constant article was that of piston propeller airplanes. Aerodynamic theory predicted that propeller planes at high altitudes and speeds could not work, which led engineers to develop the turbojet as a solution. So presumptive anomalies and functional failures can be seen as analogous to Kuhn's scientific anomalies, thereby leading to possible technical revolutions. The fifth article is Notes Toward a Philosophy of the Science-Technology Interaction by Derek Price. Derek was a professor in the Department of History of Science and Medicine at Yale. His main argument is that our divided understanding of science and technology in part has resulted from split academic domains, the history of science on one hand and the history of technology on the other, two separate, almost vertical silos. In other words, there has not been a holistic understanding of the history of science and technology together. We tend to see science as its own thing and technology as its own thing. And I'll just comment that in my own PhD coursework in science and technology uh, in society, um, I, I, it's taught that way too. So, for example, he suggests that rather than think of the theory part of science as the part of the science process where the scientist proposes a new hypothesis, 
And then there's the experimental part of science that tests that hypothesis. Derek says that it's better to understand that the experimental part of science is actually linked with that of technology. For the sophistication of the technology involved with conducting a particular experiment determines what results we can observe, right? Cruder technologies, cruder observations. More refined technologies, more advanced technologies, more advanced, useful, perhaps uh, insightful observations. And all of this impacts how well our hypothesis test actually how good it is. Price views experimental science as a craft tradition, and advances in technology can help cause scientific revolutions since an experiment's results, again, is a function of the technology used in the experiment, can cause scientific insights that lead to scientific anomalies. Advances in technology lead to the discovery of scientific anomalies, which can lead to scientific revolutions. The sixth and final essay is The Structure of Technological Change, Reflections on a Sociological Analysis of Technology by Peter Weingart, who was a professor of the Sociology of Science and Science Policy at the University of Bielefeld. Weingart's essay concerns developing a sociology of technology. He bases his analysis on the idea that the production of scientific knowledge is a structured social activity from codes of professional ethics to the organization of scientific disciplines to the organization of groups of scientists and labs focused on specific theories. His question is, what are the similar social structures in technology? He notes, as have others in the book we are discussing today, that in many ways technology is more complex than science and that the social structures of technology include those similar to what we find in science, but in addition, political, cultural, and economic structures as well. For example, part of a technical design depends on technical principles, scientific principles, but also partly on, for example, economic issues such as cost. I'll come back to this point when I get to my overall take on the topics covered in the book in just a moment. But Weingart also notes that technology is a cognitive system, especially when you consider the hundreds to thousands of engineering schools and courses that teach general engineering and scientific principles, methods, and theories. Engineering is a profession with many organizations, social groups, cultures, and norms. But his overall point is that technology can be conceived of as knowledge. And invention can be viewed as a form of knowledge production, which, again, as others have noted in the book, allow for parallels with Kuhn's model for scientific knowledge production that we discussed earlier. And so with the last essay of the book by Wingart, I did want to try to apply what I got out of the book to something that I'm interested in, which is artificial intelligence. While Kuhn demonstrated that a historical approach is valuable for developing an understanding of scientific processes, he noted that his observations and theoretical developments regarding communities of practice, paradigms, anomalies, and revolutions were significantly and perhaps uniquely compatible with the physical sciences. However, similarities between scientific processes and technological processes have been noted though that there are still differences between the two. We saw this throughout the essays in the book. As for parallels between scientific change and technological change, 
Edward Constant noted that technologies are developed using traditions of technological practice within communities of technologists, analogous with scientific communities practicing normal science. Akin to scientific revolutions, Constant noted that technological revolutions occur due to technological anomalies caused by functional failures or presumptive anomalies. And we mentioned that a few moments ago. Though unlike scientific revolutions, technological revolutions need not displace the current technological paradigm. A new technological revolution does not automatically make the previous one go away. You can, they can both still exist, which is not typically the case in a scientific revolution. Finally, Constant noted that technical communities are governed by norms and values as are scientific communities. So lots of parallels between this method, this view of technological change and scientific change. However, despite the parallels, Constant notes three major differences between the process of scientific change and the process of technological change. First, technologies have and are developed within hierarchies of structure, typically not present within science. For example, while technologies are meant to function as a whole, their design and the developers doing the designing can be decomposed into systems and teams, hierarchies absent from most scientific theories and scientific teams. Second, Constant argues that whereas science notionally aims towards a community's understanding of truth, and truth is in quotes, <laughs> scare quotes, science's conception of good enough differs from technology, where technologists create designs that are approximate or good enough, as in Herbert Simon's notion of satisficing. Third, whereas scientific communities enjoy relative autonomy in terms of the acceptability of scientific results, scientific peer review, for example, Technologies are evaluated according to technical standards as well as governmental, economic, and societal factors outside of the technical community. And it's this difference between scientific change and technological change in terms of how each are evaluated that's of interest to me. Compared to technology, science is a closed system in terms of what counts as successful science. Scientists determine who and what is a part of their community and what counts as valid. You can't vote yourself <laughs> to be a scientist. You, you, you have to be accepted by the scientific community. Yet a technology is composed of two components, the development of the technology as well as the evaluation of the technology, with the latter being influenced by factors outside of the technology community. In fact, David Wojcik argues that the evaluation policy drives the technology being developed. Since the feasibility and suitability of a design must meet certain fact criteria, sure, such as engineering and scientific principles, as we've mentioned, but also value criteria. And this is where we incorporate criteria from outside of technology. This is where we incorporate laws, ethics, and cultural norms. And to these value criteria, such as laws, ethics, and cultural norms, I would also add economic criteria. As noted by Peter Weingart, the priority of the criterion of economy is documented in the basic principle of construction, which is not as good as possible, but as good as necessary. So it's this evaluation policy for artificial intelligence 
that's really of interest to me. In order for an organization to reduce the risks involved with the development of a technology, such as artificial intelligence, the formalization of a technology's evaluation policy is formalized and typically known as a risk management framework. More mature technology fields have established risk management frameworks, or RMFs. The cybersecurity field, for example, has matured enough that cybersecurity concepts are being taught in universities and textbooks have been written on these ideas and concepts with these frameworks. In addition to classes on technical aspects of cybersecurity, there are, for example, also organizational and operational aspects to cybersecurity, these types of classes, and even corporate cybersecurity policy classes, such as one at Virginia Tech, BIT 5124, Cyber Law and Policy for Information Technology. Organizations can use this cybersecurity risk management framework in creating their security strategies and policies. However, artificial intelligence is a less mature field. And the idea of thinking about organizational risk from an AI perspective is relatively new. Thus, what I got out of this book are a set of theories from the history of technology to think about how artificial intelligence as a knowledge production process is organized. And within that organization, the missing element that will be needed for all of us going forwards with artificial intelligence is compared to more mature fields such as cybersecurity, this missing guidance, this missing artificial intelligence policy, and missing conceptions of risk with artificial intelligence. We don't have this. We're missing this. And I think this is part of the root of a lot of the problems we are seeing with the artificial intelligence products that are being perhaps recklessly developed and put into society prematurely. And that guidance, that risk management, risk assessment, risk communication guidance for artificial intelligence has yet to be developed. And I, I'm not going to be able to, <laughs> to develop all of that right now at, in the podcast on the fly. So um, that is, though, where you know what I got out of uh, reading this book. And so that's a good place to wrap up episode 25 on that note. I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the nature of technological knowledge. Are models of scientific change relevant? Note that this episode, again, was the first in our spring series of deep dives. You can see the complete list of books we're going to be diving into on our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Kendall Giles. But in any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.